From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Marie, Jessica, Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoris, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katerina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, my dear two Emmas, Emily, Galen, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to at least a little bit sponsor me and, well, we all know what YouTube does to the true crime community. But my podcasts, as I've said, are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast is part two of the story of Edmund Kemper, the co-ed killer. If you haven't listened to part one, I'll link it below as it covers his childhood up to and including the murder of his grandparents, which is where we left off. After 15-year-old Ed had murdered his grandparents and was arrested, he was kept in the local jail while he was being assessed and a court-appointed psychiatrist diagnosed him with paranoid psychopathy and the youth authority committed him to Atascadero State Hospital. From the beginning, they were impressed with the teen who was eager to participate. He happily submitted himself to the battery of tests they conducted on him and after an IQ test revealed him to be at 145, the same as Thomas Edison, Richard Nixon, Warren Buffett, Jim Morrison. Well, Ed hadn't even realized just how incredibly intelligent he truly was until he was in that hospital. And ironically, I have a high IQ. I didn't know that till I was locked up the first time for murder. I always thought I was a little missing up here, a little short. Uh, because I was always called stupid, I was called slow, don't you think when you do things. That was the problem. I wasn't thinking when I did things. The doctors and staff were so impressed with him that they allowed him to help them administer tests to some of the other patients. Now, 
wrap your mind around that. What an incredible education he got in what kinds of questions were on these tests, what answers or combinations of answers the doctors were looking for, and how to interpret the data. He learned quickly exactly what they were looking for in his behavior and mental health. Ed also had time to get to know other patients that were there because they were dangerous, such as rapists, who would regale their tells of what it was like to rape a woman and the high they got from the control. Now, being that Ed was getting into his mid and later teens, he was becoming very sexually aware. These stories left an impression on his rapidly maturing mind. He was also growing taller finally reaching a whopping six feet, nine inches tall, or 2.06 meters. He kept to himself. He was clean cut, displayed conservative views, extremely intelligent, but very sheltered. Once the hospital decided he was well, quote unquote, they discharged him at 21 years old in 1969. So between part one and the beginning of part two, that was Edmund's childhood. There is just so much to work with there that the only place to start is at the beginning. We've spoken before about whether or not mental illness can be inherited. The National Institutes of Health state that a new study shows major mental disorders once thought to be distinct actually share genetic kind of glitches. Now, science has known for a long time that a lot of mental health issues seem to run in families, which point at possible inherited genes. Usually, if a mental disorder were to be inherited, it would generally be the same mental disorder the previous member of the family had. Also, as you probably already know, I am a huge fan of Dr. Jim Fallon and his work, and if you are really interested in the in-depth studies of brain differences in psychopaths, well, I highly recommend him. But one thing he talks about is the major violence genes and, importantly, a variant of these genes that is in a percentage of the human population. It's on the X chromosome, meaning it is only inherited from the mother. Daughters will have the XX chromosome, so they have that extra X to sort of dilute the violent X. But for boys, the other is the Y chromosome. This is why most serial killers are male. Now, we'll come back to this later. Ed was born to a mother who was a highly intelligent and motivated woman, but used negative and aggressive behaviors to assert control. It must have worked during her life because she used it quite successfully until Ed's father had had enough and the marriage ended. Ed himself stated more than once that she asserted her dominance through very passive-aggressive as well as physically aggressive behaviors at him from as far back as he could remember. So children get their personal self-esteem, sense of self-worth, and who we really are through our caregivers, most usually our parents. The old saying, nature versus nurture, is valid in that some of our personalities and things that make us individuals come from the genes we inherited from our family. 
But the nurture aspect is so very important. How a child is treated and disciplined and loved can mold what is already naturally there in many different forms or directions. Ed's mother seemed to delight in belittling her son, making him feel worthless, unloved, and empty. Belittling a child can make the child feel extremely lonely, and they withdraw to their own despair. Belittling often is just the symptom of full psychological and emotional abuse, which includes humiliating or constantly criticizing a child, threatening, shouting at a child, or calling them names, making the child the subject of jokes, or using sarcasm to hurt a child, blaming and scapegoating, not recognizing a child's own individuality or trying to control their lives, pushing a child too hard or not recognizing their limitations, exposing a child to upsetting events or situations like domestic abuse or drug taking or alcoholism, failing to promote a child's social development, not allowing them to have friends, persistently ignoring them, being absent, manipulating a child, never saying anything kind or expressing positive feelings or congratulating a child on successes, never showing any emotions and interactions with a child, also known as emotional neglect. So, which one of those can we say Clarnell didn't do to Ed? Correct, she literally takes every box. So that naturally leads us to children who are being emotionally abused might seem unconfident or lack self-assurance, struggle to control their emotions, have difficulty making or maintaining relationships, act in a way that's inappropriate for their age. Did Ed display any of these behaviors? Yes, he most certainly did. So then we throw in the physical abuse he endured from his mother and, well, we know what the outcome was. Then we have his experience in the basement, his analogy of him having to go down to hell while his mother and sisters went up to heaven is actually an excellent way to view it, especially as young as he was. As if the emotional and physical abuse weren't enough, she then completely cut him off from his family and forced him to sleep down there terrified and her response to him telling her how terrified he was was to literally hit him and tell him to you know quit being scared even though the thought never crossed his mind she told him the reason he had to sleep down there was because she was afraid that he would rape his sisters now, keep in mind, he was eight, nine, ten years old during this time, making her fear ridiculous. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. It's not my place to really officially diagnose anyone with anything. I only give my opinion based on the information available, and with that, I feel that Clarnell could very well have suffered with borderline personality disorder, and here's why. From the Crime Piper blogspot, which I've linked below in the notes, states, quote, Where did the paranoia she harbored that Kemper would molest his sisters stem from? End quote. 
The site states that Clarnell has been used as an example of the, quote, witch queen type in many articles and books written about Ed and his situation. So what does that look like? Well, there are four types of borderline mothers, the witch, the hermit, the waif, and the queen. The witch borderline mother is consumed by self-hatred, most often subconsciously, and displays extreme hostility and cruelty toward her children. When her feelings of rage are mixed with impotence, they have a tendency to be quite cruel to those who are less powerful than they are, physically or mentally or both. They are usually self-obsessed and have little to no concern for others and their feelings. They do not take any form of criticism well at all, and their need for ultimate power and control stems from their own insecurities and fear of abandonment. This particular group, it has been said, is very resistant to treatment as they won't allow anyone to try and help them. I believe my own mother fits this category. The effects on the children are that they often find themselves the target of cruel attacks, assume that they are in fact the ones at fault, are depressed, feel shame, are insecure, and like myself, hypervigilant or always on red alert and dissociative. They have difficulties forming and maintaining relationships. Some can go on to develop PTSD and could suffer with BPD themselves, which Thankfully, I do not. The hermit mother sees the world as a very dangerous place and are self-serving and quite callous. They are always awaiting some perceived impending doom, have deep inner shame, which is projected outwardly. They put on this tough outer shell and project a superficial image of independence and confidence, but in reality are prone to rage and are insecure. The children of these mothers, in turn, find it difficult to learn appropriate coping skills for a wide variety of life's problems. The waif mother portrays a sense of helplessness, hopelessness, feeling deep despair, having extremely low self-esteem, and having an overall victim mentality. They see themselves as a failure and, in turn, might treat her children both indulgently and then negligently. There is usually an undercurrent of rage which could erupt if she begins to feel abandoned. The children of the waif mother feel like they are failures because they can never make her happy. They might also share her negative worldview and can sometimes find it difficult to separate from their mother. And then finally, we have the queen. This mother craves constant attention. She uses her children to fulfill her own needs. She will not tolerate disagreement or criticism from her children, and doing so just proves to her that her children must not love or respect her. She has deep feelings of sadness and emptiness and seem to not be able to self-soothe. They have a powerful sense of entitlement and are known to use even blackmail to get what she wants. She is cunning in that she will plan premeditated manipulation, which I also think my mother has. 
The queen's mood will saturate the atmosphere of the whole house and everyone is expected to bend and mold themselves according to her mood. If people do not comply, she will use devaluation to shame them into compliance. She needs constant control over her child, regardless of the child's feelings. Yep, I felt that too. These children harbor deep confusion and anger. They also sometimes long for approval, recognition, and unconditional love. So children subjected to this kind of parenting will usually display one of the three coping mechanisms, fight, flight, or freeze. It would seem that throughout Ed's childhood, he was kind of stuck in freeze. When Ed was finally able to escape his mother and live with his father, he felt he was in competition with his father's new wife and children. So in a sense, he felt rejected by his father, who then promptly abandoned him with his grandparents and namely Maud, his grandmother whose personality wasn't as negative as Clarnell's that I think anyway, but a very strong and domineering personality nonetheless. Clarnell and Maud both had issues with feeling like they had to constantly be in control. I don't think any one of us are confused as to why Ed eventually snapped. Not being able to handle his hypercritical mother or cope with the stress and tension, he took his frustrations and violent fantasies out on small animals. It started with surrogates at a non-human level. Physical objects, my possessions, other people's, destruction of things that are cared about, and then destruction of things that are living on a lower level, small animals, uh, insects, animals, and then finally people. He fantasized about violence and people being inanimate objects so that he wouldn't have to deal with their reactions since most of what he experienced was negative. So with all these ingredients, it comes as no surprise that he did indeed snap, that he had a break from reality. So getting back into his story... Ed was released from the state hospital in 1969. I'm sure we are all quite aware with what was going on in California and much of the country during that time. He walked out at 21 years old with his perfect haircut, perfectly manicured mustache, pressed clothing, state-issued glasses, looking like what they called back then a square. The whole time he had been in Atascadero, they had told him that he needed to not have anything to do with his mother, that she had, as Ed put it, gotten her pound of flesh out of him. They pounded into his head that their relationship was toxic. He needed to go zero contact. Then it was time for him to leave, and they paroled him to none other than his mother. I got paroled to my mother. Atascadero decided that I didn't never need to talk to her again at all. Don't give her a Christmas present. Leave her alone. She got her pound of flesh out of you. I wasn't sniveling about my mother to them. I didn't like to hear what they had to say about her. She went to three husbands like a hot knife through butter. When Four did... months after I was out, I was back into the fantasy bag. But he also managed to get his records sealed. Ed said that it was all of four months after his release that he was back into the dark fantasy life in his mind. 
He tried to date, but he'd been in a state hospital since he was 15 and lacked the naturally progressing social skills to be successful. My first date was an absolute disaster. It wasn't her fault. You know, and I didn't blame her even then. I'm saying it was a terrible tragedy, but boy, it was it, boy, she didn't ever talk to me again. It was awful. It wasn't sexual or grabbing at her. And I was just such a dork taking her to a John Wayne movie and uh, Denny's. It's terrible. I'd never been on a date at 16. That was cool, you know. I'd never been on a date, you know. I was locked up since I was 15. But I can't tell her that. Oh, gee, don't mind me. You know, she kind of got hung up on my looks or whatever. You know, I mean, she's a gorgeous young lady pure class, and she saw something there that I guess wasn't there, and boy, she found out quick. His mother had already been through yet another husband, and her drinking had increased while he was away. It did not take long for the arguing to resume. They often had verbal altercations loud enough for the neighbors to hear. Kemper later stated, quote, My mother and I started right in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. I would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it and just over stupid things. I remember one roof razor was over whether I should have my teeth cleaned." End quote. Ed went about deciding on a career and thought about becoming a police officer at first, but apparently there was a height restriction and he was simply too tall. He had begun going to a community college under the supervision of the youth authority and was doing quite well. He bought a motorcycle so he could at least feel like a policeman. His doctors reported that he was adjusting to life outside of the hospital very well, and when his mother stated she was moving to Santa Cruz to start an administrative assistant job at the university there, they advised him not to go with her, but the youth authority again forced him to go. After getting a good job working for the highway department and was able to afford an apartment with a roommate, he began having drinks at a bar where local police officers went and chatted with them. They liked him, and they called him Big Ed. Riding his motorcycle around, he was hit by a car twice. The last time, he walked away with a broken arm and was given a settlement. With that money, he bought a white 1969 Ford Galaxy and found that he absolutely loved to drive around. And while doing so, he also became aware of how many girls were around hitchhiking. At first, he thought it would be a great way to get to know people and genuinely enjoyed picking them up and giving them a ride. No harm, no foul. What he was also doing was watching their reactions to him and learning to mold and shape his behavior to make girls trust him more. I was scared to death of failing in male-female relationships. I knew absolutely nothing about that whole area. Even if just sitting down and talking with a young lady. I need to be able to really communicate. And ironically enough, that's why I began picking people up. And I'm picking up young women. And I'm going a little bit farther each time. It's a daring kind of a thing. At first, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching, where I could act out. And I say, no, I can't. 
and then a gun is in the car, hidden. And this craving, this awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my insides, this fantastic passion. Uh, it was overwhelming me. It was like drugs. It was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. At first it is. And as you adjust to that psychologically and physically, you take more and more and more. It's the same process. So it finally came down to the thing of, do I dare bring this gun out? Already realizing if that gun comes out, something has to happen. This, coupled with the still constant fighting with his mother, who called him or even showed up to his apartment, well, the violence in his mind was becoming so overpowering that it threatened to spill out into reality. He then made the passenger side door of his car to where it couldn't be opened from the inside. He began stashing items inside of it, such as knives, guns, trash bags, and so forth in the trunk. But once everything was in order, he was ready and knew exactly what was about to happen. On May 7, 1972, he was driving around Berkeley when he saw 18-year-old students Mary Ann and Anita hitchhiking. He pulled over, and they stated they needed to go to Stanford, so Ed agreed to take them. He drove for a bit, but decided on a remote area outside of the city, and the girls became frightened. His intention was to rape them, but he had been taught at the hospital that it was best not to leave any witnesses. He handcuffed Marianne and apologized for accidentally brushing his hand against one of her breasts. He then locked Anita in the trunk. He then went back to the inside of the car, stabbed, and strangled Marianne. Once she was dead, he returned to the trunk and killed Anita the same way. In the first killing in May of 72, when that gun was pulled out, I launched it out and I had it under my leg out of sight, parallel to my, to my leg in the seat. It was something that had been thought out in fantasy, acted out, felt out hundreds of times before it ever happened. I'd just gone through a horrible experience with her roommate stabbing her, and I was in shock because of that. I couldn't believe that it was that way. And I'm walking back there bewildered. I gotta kill her. I can't let her go. She's gonna tell on me. Everybody's gonna get me. She sees the blood on my hands. What are you doing? She pulled back and she gasped. And I think, whoa, I don't want her to know what happened. I said, your friend got smart with me. She'd been getting really smart with me a lot, but I never hit her. I killed her, but I didn't hit her. I said, your friend got smart with me and I hit her. I think I broke her nose. You better come help. She's about to die. Why, do, why does she have to know that? I couldn't deal with telling her that. And when I attacked her, she didn't at first realize what was happening. It didn't go through. She had very heavy coveralls on. It knocked her right up into the lid of the car, but it didn't pierce the clothing. I kept on just mindlessly attacking. She falls back into the trunk. I just killed a young woman. I slammed down the lid of the trunk. She isn't dead. She's dying. He then put Marianne's body in the trunk with Anita's, took them back to his apartment, and while his roommate wasn't home, he took the bodies inside, photographed them naked, then proceeded to have sex with the bodies. 
Once he was finished, he dismembered the girls, putting their pieces into trash bags, violated the severed heads, then disposed of everything near Loma Prita Mountain. Living through a fantasy, however that would relate to that severed head. And then five minutes later, I'd put that away and there'd be a knock on the door and I'd put it away. Some people go crazy at that point. I felt it. It was one hell of a tweak. I mean, to just flip out and not know where I was. To be walking up the stairs with a camera bag that belonged to a young woman that had her severed head in it. Walking up to my apartment past a happy young couple coming down the stairs who nodded and smiled at me as they went by. Good evening. And they're going out on a date where I'd love to be going. And I'm aware of both of these realities and the, dis the distance between those two is so dramatic, so amazing, so violent that that really, I can feel the wheels squeaking inside. That was really pulling on it. And I imagine at that point some people break. But I didn't literally go insane. I didn't get lost. Four months later, Ed picked up 15-year-old Aiko, who needed a ride to a dance studio because she had missed the bus. He again drove out into a secluded area and put a gun on the girl, but he got out of the car and managed to lock himself out. And yet, he also managed to talk this girl into letting him back into the car. He then immediately strangled her until she was unconscious, raped her, then he killed her. He placed her body in his trunk, stopped off at a bar to have a drink, then went back outside, opened the trunk, and apparently stood there, admiring his kill like a real hunter would. He then took her back to his apartment and did the same with her that he had done with the first two, disposing of the bags containing her remains out in the wilderness. On January 7th, 1973, Ed and his mother had gotten into it badly that day, and he had been forced to move back in with her, so... He got in his car to go search for a victim. As he was driving around the college, he picked up 18-year-old Cynthia, drove to a secluded area, shot her, then took the body to he and his mother's apartment, where he stashed the corpse in the closet overnight. Once Clarnell left the next morning for work, he had sex with the body dismembered it in his mother's bathtub, and got rid of the remains, save her head. He continued to use the head for a few days before burying it in his mother's backyard, the face facing upward toward his mother's window. He would later say he did this because Clarnell always loved people to look up to her. Cynthia's remains would be found. You see, the actual murdering of the girl was horrible for Edmund. He struggled with knowing that they would suffer, at least for some small amount of time, and he didn't want that at all. I altered, well, they weren't really spontaneous. I altered how I approached these young ladies from the point of capture from the first time. What I had wanted to do was to secure them and to suffocate them with plastic bags over their heads. I had some completely unrealistic uh, perspective that that was quick, that they would lose consciousness rapidly. 
Well, my original intention was to make it very quick and neither one of them to be aware of what was happening. And it was not to keep them from stopping the crime. It was to keep them from suffering. I had a real bad problem depriving people of their lives. It wasn't uh, the aspect of killing them. It was the aspect of possessing their bodies afterwards. So it was almost a, after an effect, evicting someone from their human body. His intended result was to be able to own the body once she was already dead. Nearly exactly a month later, after yet another fantastically horrible argument with his mother, Ed went on the hunt. Now, the authorities had begun to warn people that there might be a serial killer on the loose, though that specific term was brand new and told people to either not hitchhike at all or only get in with people that had a school parking sticker on their car. Well, guess what Ed had because his mother worked at the university. Now, he stated that if he got a girl in with him and started talking about the murderer that was on the loose, she was getting a safe and free ride to wherever she wanted to go. Ironically, one warning advised riding only in cars with university stickers. Kemper's car had such a sticker. My mother worked at the campus and I had an A sticker on my car, an obvious access day or night to the campus. I was picking up some very lovely young women. You know what we were talking about as we're driving around? Almost as often as not, this guy is going around doing this stuff. And the second they started talking that, they didn't realize it, but they were getting a free ride. I couldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, I swear. But they'd be telling me what all about this guy, and they're comparing notes and speculating on what he looks like, how he carries himself, why he's doing this stuff, telling me about it. She judged me not to be that guy. I didn't look like him getting easier to do. I was getting better at it. But on February 5th, he picked up two girls, Rosaline and Allison. He then got them away from the public, shot both of them, and wrapped their bodies in blankets. He then did the exact same thing to them as he had all of the previous ones. Finally, Ed had had enough. He knew the murdering had to stop. He knew just who he was killing over and over, and he made the decision to destroy the root of the problem. It was springtime. It was April. Uh, and for two months, I hadn't killed. And I said, it's not going to happen to any more girls. It's got to stay between me and my mother, and it's got to... I can't get away from her. We're still fighting. She's still belittling me. She's still I'm like a puppet on a string, and I entertain her. She knows all my buttons, and I dance like a puppet with that pain. And it had even gotten physical to where I had physically grabbed her and thrown her onto her bed, trying to emphasize a point that she's I was threatening to kill her. I said, she's got to die, and I've got to die, or girls like that are going to die. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party, she got soused, she came home, went to sleep. On April 30th, 1973, Ed was sleeping when Clarnell got home from a party she had attended and she had been drinking. While lounging in bed reading a book, she noticed Ed was standing in the doorway and was instantly irritated. I walked up to her bed, she's laying there reading a paperback. 
as many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. And I looked at her and I said, no. I said, good night. And I knew I was going to kill her, you know. And a soul cold is so hard. And that's the first time in 10 years I've looked at it that way. I mean, that intensely, that honestly. It hurts. Because I'm not a lizard. I'm not from under a rock. I came out of my mother. And in a rage, I went right back in. For seven years, she said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. is one of our arguments. I cut off her head. And, I'm, and I humiliated her corpse. So there, you know. He then got up, picked up a claw hammer, bludgeoned her to death, then slit her throat. She had told him recently that she hadn't had sex with a man for years because of her murderous son. So he decided to decapitate her, humiliate her in the worst way, and said, There. He then took out her vocal cords and ground them up in the garbage disposal in an act of finally being able to shut her up. He played darts with her head, allegedly, that he placed on a shelf, then hid the remains in his closet. After leaving to have a few drinks, later that day, he invited his mother's friend, Sarah, over for dinner and a movie with him and his mother. She agreed, and after showing up... Ed strangled her, decapitated her, and had sex with her body. He then stashed her body in the closet, wrote a note for the police, and fled. I still loved my mother, and it's hard for somebody to comprehend that you murder your mother through love. It isn't a rational process. It's a very painful process. It isn't rational. And I've got to still live with that. It had to stop. It had to stop. Uh, once my mother was dead, there was an, almost a cathartic process at that point. I got physically ill right then when she died, when I murdered her. And once she was dead, there was no way I could back out. I had backed down from giving up a thousand times. The note said, quote, approximately 5.15 a.m., Saturday. No need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick. Asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. End quote. Ed then got into his car and drove straight to Pueblo, Colorado, where he stopped, called the police, and confessed his murders. In his case, he said uh, publicly that it was his mother that he was killing all along. And when he killed his mother, uh, that was the end. It's a very deep psychological observation from himself. It, it may be very accurate. He then patiently waited for the local police to find him at the payphone, pick him up, and send him back to California. When they asked him why he had turned himself in, he described being done with it all, that his motivation after his mother's death was gone, and he was tired. He gave a detailed confession and showed investigators where they could find the remains. Court-appointed psychiatrists deemed him sane. 
Ed had said he cannibalized the leg muscle of one of his victims while under the influence of a truth serum, but has maintained that he did not eat any remains. On November 8, 1973, the jury found him guilty on all counts. He did ask for the death penalty, but by then California had abolished that. He has been in prison ever since and is still alive to this day as of this recording. He has always been a model prisoner. He skips parole hearings because he does not want to leave prison. He has recorded himself reading books to make audiobooks for the blind. Kimber is now the prison's best reader of books for the blind. I actually wish I knew where I could find those audiobooks, but I hear that the prison will not release them. I'd love to hear them. He did have a stroke in 2015 and stopped all of his activities. He has agreed to many, many interviews over the years and has always been cooperative, upfront, and as honest as we think he can be about his crimes. I fully believe that if he had been able to get away from the domineering and cruel mother that he had at a very early age, he might not have committed these crimes. Even though he did grotesque and disgusting things with the bodies of his victims, there is a part of me that has a soft spot for Ed. And if you listen to my intro, it is Ed saying, quote, I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. End quote. See, when you have a child with what I think was a genetic propensity for mental illness and you stick him with a person who raises him in the horribly abusive way she did, combined with the abandonment he felt from his father, well, it's no surprise he did the things he did. And I truly wish he hadn't because nearly all murderers aside, he is a fascinating person to listen to. He was so highly intelligent. I just feel he could have really done something more with himself. But tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment or DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. But most importantly, thank you guys so, so much for listening. Because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 